welcome to the Lawyer Live podcast, where the personal, professional, and political intersect. Each week, we cover a topic to help ourselves and other lawyers navigate our days with a little less stress and ideally a lot more fulfillment. On today's episode, we continue to talk innovation. We're asking what to do when innovation gets ahead of the law. I'm Mike Anderson. And I'm Darlene Tonelli. Hello, Darlene. (laughs) Happy Friday. Anyway, how's it going? It's going very well. I'm really interested to talk. I'm hoping there's a generational divide when we talk about innovation. We'll see. Mm, Gen X versus millennial. Good, juicy controversy. (laughs) Controversy is not really our our stock and trade on this podcast, but uh, I am very interested in your thoughts. I think this uh, this is something that... I, maybe we won't agree on. I'm not sure. But anyway, maybe. Ooh, good tease. Before we get there, though, we wanted to talk to the listeners, didn't we? We did. <laughs> As opposed to what we normally do. <laughs> yes. We wanted to talk directly to the listeners and appeal to them to for them to actually communicate with us, right? We want to get feedback. We want to hear from everybody listening about how we're doing, what you'd like to hear more of, what you'd like to hear less of. Uh, what else, Darlene? Anything, really. Suggested guests, suggested books for book club. Um, yeah. we're open to, we, we know you're out there. We know that, um, there's a, a consistent level of interest. What we don't know is any specific details about that. And our social media presence is, is pretty new and run at the same time as we both run our law practices. So, um, it would be very helpful to just engage directly somehow with our, with the people who enjoy the show. Yeah. And you can, uh, so you can engage with us, uh, on social media, if, that, if that's your preferred route, Twitter is at LawyerLifePod, Instagram at LawyerLifePod. Uh, yeah, let us know how we're doing and what you'd like to hear. Thanks. Okay, so now let's get, we're, this is kind of a part two of innovation. So last week we talked about why, what are the advantages and how exactly can you innovate within your law practice and in the, the industry generally. Today what we're actually going to set up is what happens when innovation is ahead of the law. And, and now is a very interesting time to talk about this issue because there's very fascinating examples of new products, new services that a lot of us can think of off the top of our minds uh, that have uh, integrated into our everyday lives that did so by, in, in many ways, getting ahead of the law or implementing before the law could catch up. Right. So Uber, we're going to talk today about Bird, the new uh, electric scooters. Bird or... scooters. Bird scooters. Um, these kind of things. Facebook, a little bit from back in the day when they were doing something new and are now talking about what they were doing. These are the sorts of legal issues that are very much in the news at the moment and are interesting to us as a result. So maybe let's let's start with example number one, bird scooters. And and this was a great way to, uh, you know, this is some of the most fun research that I've uh, done with the pod because we actually watched, speaking of innovation and disruption, uh, Netflix uh, has a series brought to you by BuzzFeed. Um, And in that series, the first episode is about bird scooters, uh, which are these scooters like you'd see a kid uh, with, like, you know, that single plank scooter. Uh, And and it's kind of like the Uber of scooters. Uh, Bird seems to be definitely first to market, at least prominently, with this sort of service and uh, started to integrate this year. And, and really their approach was to just take a bunch of scooters and place them into key markets that they were focused on first without necessarily, um, as we've learned, consulting local governments uh, or others and, and just kind of offering the service to people and seeing where it went. Right. 
Well, first, the service or the uh, the show is called Follow This, just in case people want to check it out. Um, and what what's interesting about it is that we're familiar with, so if we back up before, give a bit of history before bird scooters, um, there's Uber, which disrupted the taxi industry by basically just starting um, and calling it a ride-sharing service as opposed to a taxi and sort of sheltering under a difference in definitions. And then you've got, and that's still playing out in cities across the world, obviously, but Uber is now just entrenched in people's, uh, most people, I think, know about Uber and many people use it, especially in urban areas. Um, Then the next, I guess, piece of context that's relevant for these scooters is there was previously also what we know here in Toronto anyway as like Pixie Bike, I think they're called. Um, where there was a big rollout of these docking stations for bikes and you can kind of check them in and check them out, um, done in hand in hand with the municipalities and rolled out sort of in a systematic way across cities. I don't know a lot about that business model, but I think it's relevant to point out that that's kind of the, the next or another, another relevant thing to look at in this, uh, in this analysis. And then the third thing is this bird scooter, which is effectively saying no docking station, no license, no anything, just an app. You pick up your scooter, you indicate, I think you type in a QR code or something, you scan a QR code on the, on the scooter. It knows that you're riding it. It bills you by the minute, put in your credit card. And this was done without any permissions from municipalities. And so I think what I, what's interesting about it from a legal perspective is for me, this is kind of the ask, don't ask permission, beg forgiveness style of, um, compliance <laughs> lack thereof um what would you say is that a do you think it's a fair well it's it really ultimately it's an approach to get your product in market as soon as you can yeah right and yeah and in, i mean in the music industry back in the day napster just started they didn't go and get licensed even though the law was pretty clear that you needed a license to put a copyrighted mm-hmm. piece of music online they just started it they started a groundswell towards a different business model but, you know, Napster is not, I mean, the, there is a, a new version of Napster, but there was a huge history of litigation, acquisition, rebranding um, that has happened between 2000 and now with that product. Um, and now when I look at the bird scooter or any of these sort of models, it's not, it's not really to, we're talking about them primarily because they're the ones featured in this, in this um, show. But similar models, the idea is you do it. And you ask permission later. You see who who is the most intense uh, f- uh, opponent of your idea, and then you r- ideally raise enough capital to fight them in court. And by the time the the issue winds its way through court, you either have an entrenched business or you don't. And I think that's what's interesting to watch as a lawyer because when we're advising clients, we it's I think most lawyers would be uncomfortable with that as an approach. Um, we could talk about that. I mean, what would you, what's your take on that? I mean, it, it is one of those things that I think personally you have to figure out if you're comfortable um, working in that space. I mean, if, if your client is asking you what the state of the law is, you advise on the state of the law uh, and it, and then from there decisions are made um, and you can give your advice. And sometimes that advice is not always followed. Uh, in this instance, it seems, and they, and from what I recall, their lawyer was was very much involved in public outreach and uh, and pieces like that. So he was, you know, seemingly part of this um, decision making process, or certainly made it made it appear that way. Well, and in the show, 
they do interview the CEO, and we shouldn't give a spoiler, but they um, they speak. I think it's CEO. Don't quote me on that. Um, they speak to someone from the company on the phone as an interview, and they say, you know, we are looking at the regulations. We are trying to figure out where the case, you know, for our in support of our product is, and that's capitalism is effectively the point that is made in the in the show. And that's ultimately, I think you you look at what Uber did, and it's. I think it's a similar sort of sort of idea. It's get the product out to people. Know that there will be pushback and issue from the regulators, from the municipal governments and others, um, and hope that, and I think this worked out with Uber and other ride-sharing services, hope that people love your product so much that the leverage or the position of, you know, for example, the city pushing back on you uh, is is much lowered because of the public uh, desire to keep the service. And that certainly seems to be what occurred or ha- and has continues to occur with ride-sharing apps is that the city had an, a very established model with taxis of how you need to be licensed and so on and pay for that license, um, how you can pick people up and profit off of delivering them to a new spot. That was established. The rideshares companies came in, disrupted that whole model, but people loved it. And so <laughs> when it came time for councillors and mayors to be making decisions on allowing these services in the cities, there's very, it seemed to be, at least based on their decisions, um, little that they could do because already the population said, this is something we want. And then you see the implications as we do in Toronto with now the taxi drivers. Uh, bringing a claim against the city for not protecting the terms of their license. I mean, that seems to be, I mean, what, what bird scooter and others uh, hope to do is get the market, get out to market, impress potential funders, show people what's, you know, what the product is, hopefully get people. So get the product so integrated every everyday life that once the, once governments can catch up and start to deal with that issue, it's already too late. Right. And you make a very good point. The point is, the public doesn't always want regulation, right? And I think the U.S. is the extreme example of that, where regulation is very much perceived as bad, right? Counter to business, counter to capitalism, um, not by everybody, obviously. It's just, it's a much more uh, well-established point in their media and in their politics. Whereas in Canada, regulation is pretty, it's a pretty long-standing feature of our of our legal system. In Europe, the idea of regulating behavior to control outcomes is very well accepted. So I I think one of the things that we're seeing here is that these companies start in the States where they've got this, um, you know, they do have a litigious culture. They've got to use their, as part of their launch, they have a litigation strategy. They've got to. Um, They know they're going to have different state level um, issues, different municipal issues. They are budgeting for that basically when they do their fundraising. And then those business models develop sort of a place in consciousness that the other countries that are more regulation friendly have to then figure out. So I think we're also seeing that with Facebook, which will, um, and the, the recent discussions that they had with what is discussions, the right word questioning. Uh, they were, they were questioned at a committee uh, in, the, in the UK. Yeah. I mean, they've, they've basically been on a, a tour of um, international governments experiencing the differences between uh, regimes that are much more pro-regulation and the one that, you know, is their home base, which is lesser on the regulatory side. So um, all of this stuff is interesting. But you, your point was 
sometimes the consumer loves the product so much that government, which is there at the will of the people, has to respond to that. It, in many ways, it reminds me of like bringing a kid into a toy store. Um, and obviously the kid's going to want the toy. The toy is amazing, right? That And mm -hmm. they might pick up something that's uh, maybe above their age range and they might choke on or whatever. And then you're left in a position of, oh my gosh, this kid is in love with this toy. If I say that they can't have it, there's going to be a problem and a scene on our hands. But I also have to make sure that in using that toy, it's appropriate for them and, they, and they're protected and that, you know, these sort of things, same apply. And I know people talk about nanny state and whatever, and there should be a, a male version of that too. Uh, but in the end that there is a role for government, um, at least in my view, to be making sure that the attractive thing that's being floated out to us uh, actually uh, is safe and uh, sustainable for us to use. And that's, I think the, the, the push and pull right now of what we're seeing, you know, you could say in the online environment and certainly um, in the rideshare environment and all these others is that, you know, we want the thing, we want the flashy thing, we want to work with the thing that makes us feel good. Um, and no, if, if there aren't laws and regulations that um, are followed, then, then there's a back end that exposes us to a lot of risk. And so, um, you know, we see lawsuits now against rideshare companies when drivers uh, engage in terrible behavior, whether that's sexual assault, which we've seen, uh, or as well, uh, just uh, some dangerous driving that leads to fatality. Um, on the, in the online social media world, we see that, you know, we might want to engage very quickly with the newest, greatest thing. But if uh, our information isn't being protected properly, there's large follow-up for that. These sort of, let's say, unsexy things uh, can't fall to the individuals, everybody, you know, you and I and a million people can't all be, uh, guarding our privacy against, uh, you know, an online, uh, social media platform or guard our safety against a rideshare program. That's up to governments to do. And the, the issue right now is that it's kind of flipped. And now instead of getting those more boring, but substantive and important issues taken care of first before the product comes out, the product comes out first and then we figure it out later. Right. And I think there's also this lionizing of of capitalism as a as a fixer of ills, right? Like there I think what's interesting and what is consistent from the sort of early file sharing services in music, the ride sharing services in uh, the taxi world, Airbnb, you know, all of these things, the consumer wants them. They don't really necessarily know why the existing and this is why i'm interested in the sort in your perspective is like you know you don't necessarily as a consumer who is as i was introduced to um, file sharing of music in university it was this great new thing i got a brand new computer in the uh, early 90s and a friend is like hey you put this thing on here called winamp you can play any music from anywhere and i was like love winamp what? Winamp? I'm really dating myself when I say Winamp. Mike, you surely no, did not I, see Winamp, did you? Yeah. I mean, I it's it was for a long time my favorite way to play music. Oh my gosh. But you were in like junior high or elementary school or something. <laughs> I'll tell you about my experience of that in a second. Okay. Well, anyway, my point is when I had this experience in, in university where someone said, there, I had a friend who was, I, I think you would call him today, a, a bona fide hacker. And I went into his dorm room and I, he said, look at all these CDs because he knew I was a music fan. 
And I said, well, what are these CDs? And he's like, I burned them off the internet. I have this burner. I have these, you know, which was a totally new concept to me at the time. And I said, but, but how can this be right? And he's like, who cares? You know, I found it on the internet. And I always just bristled at that. I think people pretty much in the press said it was a bad thing, right? Like people pretty much focused on the lawsuits. Obviously the music rights holders were all over them because this was crazy from their perspective. Um, but I feel like with the market now, there's a little bit more support, like, well, it's better. And in fairness, the music industry does now look much more like file sharing than it looks like buying CDs in a store. So they did move the needle. The, you know, there were many, 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 many battles fought about it. The experience for the consumer is now better. And would the industry have gotten there on their own? I don't know the answer to that question because we don't we didn't go through it by choice. We went through it by fire as an industry. And I think in the taxi industry, that that fight is, you know, we don't know how that's going to shake out. In Airbnb, we don't know how that's going to shake out with hotels. We don't know lots of things, but that's the interesting thing for me because the consumer did win in the music business, you know, and the, a bunch of services did pop up that are multi-billion dollar services. Now it's not the one who originally, you know, uh, broke ground on that issue, but you know, what happens? Like, is that okay? I guess is the question. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, it's a lot, yeah. it's a lot for you to ask you, but you're supposed to, this is the thing where you should disagree as someone who's, but since you had Winamp, now this messes up this whole idea that we're going to have an argument. Okay. <laughs> so for music, I, I think the distinguishing factor perhaps between like pirating music and these newer Airbnb ride shares, social media, new, like newer social media platforms is that there was very little for the uh, the person to lose when just like downloading music off of Napster. Um, I don't know how many corrupted files there might have been that have allowed maybe to exposure onto your computer or whatever. Um, maybe that's a risk. But otherwise, like there is there's a real risk in getting in a car with a stranger in an unregulated environment, or there's there's a real risk right. with renting out your home to strangers in an unregulated environment. And there's a risk to, you know, putting all of your very rich personal data online in a general, if it's not unregulated, certainly the regulations aren't always followed in that environment. And so I think that music is a great way to show that if you're an industry that isn't pushed and looking forward and frankly doesn't have to, uh, you know, something around the corner can uh, challenge your whole model because there's a threshold at which people want to, will stop supporting your model. And, and I think it could be argued that that threshold was when you had to buy a CD for $25 or whatever it was. Um, so I understand why Napster came around when people really, really um, grabbed onto it. I think that for the purposes of this conversation, it would be a fascinating thing. And obviously this is uh, a hypothetical or fictional, but imagine if Spotify showed up uh, in that era and you could, for $10 a month, get all the music you wanted. Um, then Spotify, like, you know, Napster was first to market, but Napster's not the one winning right now. And I, I, I suppose what I'm saying is, and, I, and I, obviously this is ideal and maybe not realistic, but if these innovate, innovators and, and these people, you know, disrupting actually focused on compliance uh, in tandem with development of the new thing, uh, and launched fairly close or really fully complying, 
then I think they're established as a leader and would be continued to be for a very long time. They figured it out first and they're first to market. And I know that might be very difficult and unrealistic, but I think it's something that we should really try to get to, uh, both for the, the rights of the consumer and also to win as a business. Um, because Napster is not the leader uh, and you could go down this, this list, um, of people first in market that got people interested in that type of platform or service, but then lose because ultimately it's not a sustainable model because they built it wrong. Well, I think it's an interesting point. So, and to, to sort of tie what you're saying and what I'm saying together, I think what, what I see as the commonality here is that in the music business and all of these you know, industries we're discussing. One of the things that you realize when it gets disrupted is the fault line kind of between what people think is important to the consumer and what actually is. So in the world of music, to me, it was important that the artists were compensated for their work, but it wasn't that important to a a big piece of the base. Not everybody, not everybody pirated music. It wasn't I still think that the actual amount of piracy and the actual people who were doing it wasn't as, it wasn't mass. It was just a big percentage of people who used to buy music um, and not in any way. It's a, for another discussion. But when you looked at what they cared about, they cared about access to music, easy access to music, you know, music, one song and not the whole album. There were things that it disclosed about the buyer. And I think in the taxi situation, what you realize is people are willing to take these risks. Even people like me who were always taught like never hitchhike, never get in someone's car that you don't know, you know, things that um, that wasn't that important to people. What was important to people was an app, immediacy, uh, cheap, cheap rides, and they were willing to throw the dice or they weren't aware that this was not a regulated thing. And I think that's something that, I don't know about that. I haven't given this enough thought, but maybe like to me, if I got into an Uber, I would be, I would be thinking, Hmm, I wonder if this is regulated in any way. Right. I think there's a faith in technology that people have, which is if I get in this car, someone will know and someone will have done the diligence to know who this person is and, you know, make sure that they are who they say they are and they didn't take this car. And, you know, like there's, there's so much faith in that model. You know, you could make an argument that by allowing people to rate, uh, a driver that you start to you could you could filter out you know and find a driver with a high rating that's well established i know people do that in the airbnb sense and so i think that they're trying to show some level of accountability uh to be like okay figure out who you want to hire or what place you want to stay at or who you want to have in your home based on the fact that they've been on the platform for x long and they have four or five stars and that's something um Yes. And that builds over time though, like day one. Yeah, Tomorrow you or I could become a driver for a ride share, do whatever we wanted and then hop off of being a driver. Anybody could do that. Um, so as long as your people are willing to get in your car, you are a complete stranger <laughs> picking people up and driving them to a place or something. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, uh. <laughs> <laughs> It is a little scary, um, but it's anyway, I obviously heard a lot of arguments in favor of uh, file sharing music in my time in the industry. And I think that the the big obstacle at the time was, well, the current model, uh, the argument that I received a lot was the current model isn't good. The price is too high. I don't want a 25 song CD or a $25, 12 song CD. And this is, you know, why wouldn't I do this? 
you know, the, and there was a lot of bad blood too. I think a lot of, a lot of the arguments that I heard were, oh, you know, the record labels haven't been treating the consumer properly for many years, and this is our payback time. Uh, I don't think that comes into play so much with the taxi world. Like I don't, I, the labels are sort of unique in that, in that respect a little bit, I think, as far as public perception. Um, but maybe, yeah, maybe that's know. part of it. I think there was like, I, I don't think people were ever in love with cabs before. And um, they wasn't, <laughs> no one would claim. I, I love being cabs. in a cab. <laughs> uh, and there was, I, I know I was always frustrated with them guilting, me for trying to use a card and it was it definitely seemed like an antiquated service even before uh mm. ride shares came yeah, around and you saw at when this all when uber hit toronto and other cities cabbies protested and people weren't like yeah good for them they were like oh my god you know what are they complaining about i need to get to the airport i need to you know get through rush hour maybe there was not necessarily as like get the big labels but it was a lot of like not a lot of empathy I think for that, for uh, cabbies at that time. Well, it's funny because my dream was that if Uber came in and, or any ride sharing company came in, disrupted the industry, that what taxis would do was kind of double down and monetize the value that they had, which was, you know, predictability. I like getting in a cab and seeing the person, the license and the person's picture. Like I, I like that. And now I get in a cab and it is a, there's no license up. There's no, it probably isn't the person who owns the cab that's driving because they're kind of like, why would we comply with the rules if nobody else has to comply with the rules is my theory on why this is. And, um, you know, I'm willing to kind of pay for the taxi experience at a, at a higher level. Um, but I don't know that their business model, once disrupted, has the, you know, money in it to, to up the game like that, or if they even want to, or if they think that's valuable. Maybe, maybe they don't. <laughs> so um the last thing that we wanted to cover here is is the doomsday scenario of the uberization and the potential uberization of the law and i know right. that your husband and ceo of codify has some thoughts on this and, and a good blog post on it um and and effectively the ask or the question is when or will or can somebody stroll in and start to disrupt the legal industry by despite regulations and standards and law just start to offer super cheap legal documents and legal advice uh without uh, being a lawyer and getting other people to do the same yes it's a great post i mean and we we talk a lot about about that in in our house um I think in, there are certainly businesses taking a step in that direction. And I think the, the blog post is a little tongue in cheek because what he's talking about in the blog post is, you know, random person, not a lawyer starts handing out contract advice because they've read a lot of terms of service. He's, he's a little bit playing on um, the extreme edge of what could mm -hmm. happen, but it also could happen because um, the one thing that these internet services do is they allow anonymity and they allow scale. And once you have anonymity and scale, it's very hard to police things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not the old days of the law firms where you had an office and you had a, you know, position in your community. People knew you and you were the lawyer who did all the law. Um, there's a lot that can be done online. Um, in the U.S., there are some massive services that um, one in particular, I think LegalZoom just raised $500 million 
And I think probably in large part to help them with legal battles in, in different states over whether or not they're providing legal advice. Um, it's a pretty, this problem is there a little bit. I just don't know that it, who knows how extreme it will get. But I do think as lawyers, the question for us is, are we okay with the, you know, when we are acting for companies and saying, well, you know, here's the law and you you choose whether you're going to uphold it or fight it and try to make like move the law forward that could happen in our own profession. And I don't know what we do in that circumstance. Smarter people than I probably have ideas as to what we're, what the plan is, but I feel like we need to start talking about it um, in Canada and in other jurisdictions. I I think in the U S this is an issue. What do you think? The forum in which this would be decided is a forum that is ruled by licensed lawyers <laughs> so if the if you know we talk about judges and we talk about people who are able to actually you know get before the courts and and argue um i feel like if there was a an uber-esque threat that hit the legal market uh you would see injunctions and you would see everybody uh moving as quickly as possible to stop that from occurring at, at least if it was on the scale of this doomsday scenario that we're talking about. And hey, it so happens that the people deciding on that are also lawyers well, who now sit on the Yes, bench. yes. But also when I think of the, you know, again, not not fully analogous, but in the music industry scenario, the labels were definitely fighting it. The publishers were definitely fighting it. Uh, the people who were the rights holders were absolutely in court upholding, you know, fighting to uphold the existing law. Um, and then they they won because in the end, you know, the existing law was very clear. I think in in our case, you know, lawyers as a profession, we're supposed to uphold the law. Um, we have professional conduct rules, ethics, etc. What where it gets interesting, I think, is that yes, lawyers, we can uphold the law. the The thing is, most laws say like only lawyers can give legal advice, for example. The thinking behind that is that it, you need a legal education to give that advice. And where a lot of the fault lines are showing up in the States when this issue is being litigated is, well, what is legal advice versus legal information? And, you know, when you have an AI tool, so they did a, there was a recent, um, I don't have all of the facts here, but you could Google this. Um, they recently put an AI lawyer up against a real lawyer reviewing like an NDA um, and the AI lawyer was more accurate than the real lawyer. And it was actually a couple of lawyers and there were, each of them was assigned a score. And, um, you know, these are going to be PR'd studies, right? So the people who make the AI are going to put out um, case studies <laughs> that are going to support their case. Um, but what, I, what I'm really focused on is if we're upholding the law and we know as a profession that a vast quantity of people cannot access the law, is it just about, no, 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 you have to go to a lawyer or is there something that can be done? So I think that that's kind of where um, the analogy to Uber or Airbnb comes in, which is sort of like we know that there's a demand for something that is not currently being provided as a society. Like I think somewhere in there, there's, there is that. Do we just defend the lines? Are the lines valid? Like, I don't know, not to get too philosophical on the uh, the old Lawyer Life podcast, <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, I think it's a, 
I think we need to, as a profession, take so seriously the idea of delivering value and not rest on our laurels at all on the uh, the uh, moat that we've created around our services. And I think this dovetails really wonderfully with the uh, previous episode on innovation is that as a profession, because you, you raise good points, right? Access to justice, you know, making sure that that people can actually get legal services. And that is something that the disruptive, you know, the potential disruptor could certainly solve that problem. And that's a positive. Um, but if we like perhaps pre Napster music industry or pre Uber taxis actually on our own accord decided we need to get there first. We need to make sure we're leveraging technology properly and uh, within the standards that should exist um, to, to, to make sure that the disruptor doesn't come and do it, it, it with all that risk. And that also we solve the problems for the population that can't access legal services and, and solve the problem for ourselves and as an industry um, to make sure that that disruptive force uh, to a degree, the threat of the disruptive force is lessened. So, Again, as we said last week, you know, to make an effort to bring in technology to properly scale the way that we serve people uh, and to give people quick, easy and uh, value um, based wins in their own lives is is something that we should all be uh, focusing on um, and everybody wins. And instead of fighting them, just having lawyers be a part of the equation. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's that's doable. It doesn't need to be either or. I mean, I think that there, um, there are a number of ways to solve all problems. And I think that, you know, there, we don't know yet how this is going to shake out, but I don't, I never, I'm, I'm always so worried about like, oh, well, it, you know, just rely. Now we should all be worried about the argument. Well, the law says, you know, that's, that's actually not a, enough protection right now for yes, disruption. Because the boots, the bird scooter of a law firm can show up. At any point in time, just dropping contracts everywhere. <laughs> it could just Cities be... are like, why are there contracts all over people's lawns? <laughs> well, we wouldn't be doing that in our paperless uh, world. I don't know how that would roll, but anyway. Um, okay. Well, it's super interesting discussion with you. Yeah. Okay. We'll go to an ad. And we'll come back with our goods and grapes. Great. The Lawyer Life Podcast is brought to you by Inter Alia Law, experienced legal counsel when and where you need us. To learn more about Inter Alia, visit the website at spelled I-N-T-E-R-A-L-I-A-Law.com. Thank you. And we are back to talk goods and grapes. Goods are things we like and want to support and promote. Grapes are things we find annoying. Darlene. You go first. I, I think we should, I want to hear what yours are. You know, I think where I'm going. And I should end on a negative note. I'm going to have a grape this time. Okay. <laughs> I'll do it at the end. Okay. Uh, my good. Speaking of innovating in the legal field, uh, I just want to point out that there are some wonderful legal podcasts generally, and also some wonderful Canadian legal podcasts out there. And um, the Clawbies, so C-L-A-W-B-I-E-S, uh, is, a, is, is basically a, a type of award that are being offered to people with online blogs and, and podcasts uh, in Canada. 
um, and you can get more information about clobbies.ca and, and find some really great blogs and podcasts and, and other innovative forums uh, to discuss and learn about the law. So that is my good, the clobbies, clobbies.ca. Okay. That's pretty good. Do you have a gripe? Not yet. You go. Oh my goodness. Okay. My gripe, and this is not law related, but my gripe is non-green Christmas trees. This is my gripe. Wait, and wait. Non-green is... is in not environmentally friendly or you just speak in color? Uh, I mean, trees are green, except in the <laughs> fall when they have red or yellow or orange leaves. Um, but evergreen trees are evergreen. They are green. green. They are meant to be green. And I think that when we uh, have black Christmas trees or white Christmas trees or blue or, or red or whole hallways of red Christmas trees, I feel a bit gripey. I feel that that's a gripe. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't realize that I would feel so strongly about this until I, uh, the recent furore about the, um, the White House Christmas trees. So anyway, yeah, that's my gripe. Furore. Furore? Furore. I don't know. How do you say that word? I don't know. I just like how you did it. Um, I saw, <laughs> speaking of the White House uh, Christmas trees, there's a, um, I saw someone on Twitter, I don't know who, um, replaced all of, it, photoshopped it so that it was gritty, the Philadelphia Fly, Flyers mascot. Uh, it, right. Instead of all the Christmas trees, it was very funny. And gritty is very much gaining his own popularity online, which is well-deserved. And was, uh, that's my, that's my second. Another good. Guess. No grapes about gritty. I feel like as it is December, uh, we need to have holiday-related goods and gripes a few times this month. Love it. All right. Well, nice to chat with you. It was a real pleasure, Darlene. All the best. Sincere. All the best. Kind regards. <laughs> Warmest, Mike Anderson. Warmest. Talk to you next week. Okay. Best. All the best. Kindly. <laughs> Govern yourself accordingly. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. That's it for this week's episode of LLP. Thanks to Interalia Law for presenting the podcast and to Nick Fowler for composing and performing our music. See our show notes for his website. Don't forget, we love feedback. Please comment in the review section or subscribe or like. We'd appreciate it greatly. That's it. Talk soon.